Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Today we talk to Wyatt, who is actually a, a local farmer here in central Illinois. I think we had a pretty good conversation. Yeah, the interesting thing about Wyatt and his operation is he farms conventionally, but he also farms organically on some acres, and he feeds a lot of different markets. And I think it's interesting to hear the dichotomy between those two approaches and how it works in one operation. For sure. I think this is going to be interesting to the farmers who maybe want to try their hand on one side of the farming operation, or even for consumers who maybe don't understand the difference between a conventional and organic farming system. So with that being said, let's get right into the conversation with Wyatt. Welcome to the podcast, Wyatt. To kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, thanks Preston and Jason for having me today. Uh, My name is Wyatt Muse. I grew up on a farm just outside of Monticello, Illinois. Studied agribusiness at University of Illinois and started my career in the grain business as a student, uh, student intern, and uh, then started full-time work in 2005. Uh, got to experience the ethanol boom soon after that and uh, moved into food grade corn and uh, uh, spent most of my career uh, in the food corn business, trading food corn, and uh, over the years uh, wanted to continue to pursue my dream of operating my own farm and uh, and made that uh, leap in 2016. So getting ready to plant my uh, sixth crop uh, that's my own, so to speak, and uh, thrilled to do that and have a lot of fun with it. Nice. And you were a 2020 ACES alumni award recipient, right? Yes. Congratulations. I, I, yes, I was. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, uh, 2020 uh, ACES young alumni award recipient, cool. and uh, I was very, uh, very blessed to have received that nomination and um, very honored for the award, uh, considering um, there's a, a lot of uh, very... Uh, you know, very special, very uh, successful people out there. So uh, super blessed for that. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. So let's talk a little bit about your operation. Uh, Sure. You have a little bit of unique operation. You're kind of diversified. Can you tell us a little bit about what you grow and the systems that you use? Yeah, sure. So I uh, I farm with a partner. He's a a non-family partner who's uh, farmed in the Champaign area since the 1970s really focused on growing what the market is asking for. Um, Almost every acre is committed prior to planting. So that is a a really broad range rather than uh, maybe the grow and hope strategy. Uh, The the main focus is on having a market and having uh, a destination for every bushel, every pound that's produced. And uh, then we can go focus on uh, growing the best crop possible and, and managing the agronomics. So it's a, it's a really broad range, um, anything from certified organic crops all the way to seed production that is uh, oftentimes stewardship uh, products that are um, the, the latest trait technology that may not yet be even approved. On the corn wow. side, uh, really focus a lot on uh, food corn. The majority of the acres are planted for white corn. Uh, most of that goes into tortillas and tortilla chips. and. Uh, I think many people around the world love to love to eat uh, Mexican food, and uh, we hope that and expect that to continue. Um, grow a little waxy corn. I've grown some colored corn, including red, in the past. Um, on the soybean side, uh, some clear highland beans, a fair amount of non-GMOs for the crush market, 
and then as I mentioned, uh, seed bean production. That's crazy. So, I guess did you start out with your kind of your hand in all these different piles, or how do you like even become aware of some of these different opportunities? Sure. So in uh, two thousand six or seven, um, was uh, working for the Andersons, a publicly traded grain company here at Champaign, and. Um, we earned the uh, Frito-Lay contract to buy all of the food corn in Sydney, Illinois, and Gothenburg, Nebraska. And, and that was a, a dream. I, I really enjoyed that because uh, I immediately got to meet farmers who were growing for Frito-Lay and nice. um, learned about their operation. And, oh, by the way, they get paid more to grow this corn that um, was on par with yield historically. Uh, white corn had a pretty good yield drag, but in those days, um, it, it had caught up genetically, and it was uh, it was yielding pretty well, and it was a pretty nice premium for that. And and so I really fell in love with that at the time. And in uh, 2009, uh, I went to work for a, an independent grain company, um, Clarkson Grain, and um, started to focus really solely on food corn and. Uh, that ranged from white corn to your blue corn tortilla chips to uh, certified organic corn products. And I, I kind of joke that I, I drank the Kool-Aid long enough that I, <laughs> I decided to make that leap. And actually, the, the first farm that I um, committed to uh, farming grow crops and uh, transitioning was actually the first farm I bought. I, I purchased it in partnership uh, with a, a friend, uh, a lady who... Um, desired to, to see more of that type of agriculture and wanted to invest her money and, and we did some creative financing that uh, put me in a position of land ownership and also uh, in organic farming and so that was kind of the uh, the, the jump start and uh, and it's grown from there. Nice. So I really want to ask some questions about the the different uh, production practices that you engage in because obviously you're all over the place but before we jump into that I'm kind of curious so you mentioned that most of your products that you produce, you have a market for them before you even plant it. And that's a little bit different strategy than a lot of farmers. A lot of farmers produce commodity products and they're really maybe a little bit more at the mercy of the market fluctuations. And can you talk just a little bit about the pros and cons of, of your strategy of having that market in mind when you put it in the ground? Sure. Uh, well, the pro is, as I mentioned uh, before, if, if you know you have a home for it, your focus becomes on growing the best possible crop. You, mm -hmm. you, and I think most farmers grow the best possible crop regardless if it's marketed or not. But uh, it, that takes one, one of the uh, variables or risk factors out of it. Um, you know, one of the cons is that you're at the mercy of the market, meaning that with seed bean production, for example, I generally don't know exactly what trait package or uh, I have a range of maturity, but I don't know what beans I'm going to plant in October, you know, when a lot of seed sales and seed decisions mm -hmm. are taking place for most farms. I trust that seed bean production is advancing good genetics that are going to be sold and people want to plant, so we put some trust in that. Um, you know, another downfall is uh, uh, often there are buyer's call contracts. And so, you know, as a farmer, you have to manage your cash flow. And if you have all of your grain in the bins, um, that's not the same thing as cash in the bank. And so as long as you plan ahead for that and you know that in advance, that's acceptable. Uh, I'll give an example of something that's currently happening and happened. Um, we know that 2020 saw a steep decline in um, people going to restaurants. 
and growing white corn for the tortilla market, we know that the first thing you do when you go into a Mexican restaurant is they drop a, you know, a bowl of tortilla chips right. on, <laughs> and when that demand goes to zero, uh, there's no movement of it. So um, green shipments um, from harvest of 20 until now have been considerably slower uh, than a typical year. So even though the grain is sold, hedged, committed, it hasn't moved as quickly as I would like. And so, you know, for some people, that's a that's not a risk and that they want to take. People say, I'm, I want to deliver the grain on the day that I want to deliver it, not the day that the buyer wants it. And so, you know, I would say that that's a downfall. It, it takes away some of the convenience, sure. but typically the market will pay you and reward you for that inconvenience. Interesting. So some of our listeners are consumers, so they're not even farmers. I guess, could you kind of break down at a base level the difference between like your organic farming operation versus like a more conventional operation, maybe some of the challenges associated with actually producing the final crop? Sure, sure. The challenges, Um, maybe a cost-benefit analysis on both sides. Yeah, so we have a pretty darn good recipe for growing corn and soybeans, right? We, we know what it takes. It's science. And, you know, we're blessed with uh, A-plus soil in Champaign County, Pyatt County. Or, you know, we put in a plug. We love to remind people that Pyatt was a top soybean uh, yielder again uh, in 2020. And, um, you know, um, the, the glacial uh, soils that we have are, are phenomenal. So um, when you combine great genetics with modern uh, technology and and the conveniences of modern farming on top of really good soil uh, you know weather always plays a factor regardless of the production practice but we pretty well know what it takes to grow high yield corn high yield soybeans um, that uh, doesn't come without risks as I mentioned weather timeliness markets you know lots of things play into that um, on the organic side, it, it's quite a bit more challenging because weather issues really can squeeze you, especially in the spring, uh, spring and early summer. You can't drive a field when it's wet. And with chemistry, uh, you can typically get across those acres in a, in a little wider window. I mean, you, you know, there, we know our overlapping residual plans for soybeans, but also there's... Um, you know, there's some window there that the chemistry can take care of. You know, if weeds get ahead of you in an organic system, you're SOL. I mean, there's there's not much you can do about it um, besides, you know, hand labor or mechanization. Um, so that's that's a big challenge. Um, I think one thing that, that I look at, too, that's a benefit is it having a split operation spreads the workload and the labor and... You know, for example, we planted oats this week. You know, it's the first week of March, second week of March, and uh, soil conditions were fantastic. I wouldn't dare put a kernel of corn in the ground today. There was a temptation to throw some beans out there and see what happened. We're kidding about that, kind of, (laughs) you know, kind of. (laughs) But, uh, you know, we've seen March beans perform, but, um, you know, it's nice to spread that, uh, that field operations window, that labor window, spread equipment. You know, one fantastic thing is that, you know, a, a row crop cultivator is fairly cheap and, uh, you know, you spread it across some acres and one cultivator can last 30 years and it's, that's that. Your, your, your fuel time and, and hours and depreciation on a tractor is really what 
um, what your costs are on that, you know, relative to having to buy that chemistry every year. You know, when it comes to, I I guess, back to the, the weather piece, we like to plant corn in April, right? Science tells us that corn planted the last week of April in Champaign County has the best chance of success most years. With seed treatments, we can get away with planting uh, corn into cold soil. Same with soybeans, it'll sit there, it'll be protected. Uh, you wouldn't dare do that with untreated seed. You know what happens. And years ago when we didn't have seed treatments, you put it in cold wet seal soil, it's gonna rot or you're gonna have insect issues that feed on it and you're gonna have a thin stand and, and you're gonna start over or your yields are gonna suffer, maybe both. Um, you know, with organics, you're typically gonna um, allow that first flush of weeds to come out, you destroy it with tillage, uh, you come back um, and, and plant that crop. Uh, typically mid-May is a nice target, so it, it takes some of the pressure off of feeling like you have to get everything planted between April 20th and 30th. You know, round number dates, weather dependent, but it, uh, it spreads that so you can be comfortable planting May 20th. and. Last year was really interesting. We all know what happened with the Mother's Day freeze and poor stands. And if you're trying to drop 35,000 and you have a 31 stand, you're probably not ripping it out. But we saw some yields suffer last year because of thin stands, because of that unpredicted second week of May cold wet period. Whereas the organic corn that we planted at the end of May in warm, hot soil actually it all jumped right out of the ground a full stand and and it was off to the races so i I guess that's an overview of kind of um some of the the cost benefit and i guess you know the harvest side is is pretty plain i mean besides clean outs on bins auger wagon combine etc you know harvesting corn is harvesting corn right it's it doesn't matter what the production practice was going into it as long as it's standing, which that goes to <laughs> selecting good genetics <laughs> because, yeah. you know, you, you got to make sure that even in an organic system, you start with a good base genetic because um, we're not allowed to use fungicides. We're not allowed to use most insecticides. And so you have the risk of root feeding, of stock degradation and cannibalization and all the things that we know that chemistry is made to protect and, and enhance yield potential. Um, late in the season. So starting with a good base genetic in an organic system is probably more important than in a conventional system. So you have one set of equipment and you need to clean that out in between going back and forth between the crops. Correct. Is that a is that a challenge or is that not, you got that maybe down to kind of an art at this yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, we got a pretty good system. Air and water, you know, does a lot. We'll, you know, you wash things out, you blow them out with air compressors, you sweep them out, and sure. it's not terrible. It When you're in the thick of it and you feel like you're under <laughs> pressure and it's going to rain in two days and you have this amount of acres to cover, well, you know, you, Sometimes it's like, oh, we're going to stop two hours to do this. What? But, you know, that's what we signed up for. That's how it is. And, you know, uh, I will say that most equipment and modern equipment is fairly easy to clean out. Planters clean out easy. It's it's designed to do that. Um, You know, on the storage side, I use all belt conveyors. So there's no augers to get get things caught up in. The belts do full clean out and also do less damage. So it's manageable. Sometimes you... You get a little frustrated with it, but you know, it's, it's what we signed up for. 
Why you bring up something interesting in the in this conversation? I think a lot of consumers maybe don't realize this because there often seems to be a lot of marketing on both sides. You you get the organic industry saying that the that the traditional agriculture industry is evil, and you get the traditional industry saying that organic is a joke. And but a lot of growers actually grow both, like you do. It's not necessarily an all or nothing proposition for most farmers or for a lot of farmers. And can you just comment on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that 30, 40 years ago when, you know, when most farms were, were having chemistry applied, the few organic farms that existed in those days were probably more typically strictly organic sure. uh, out of a belief. You know, that was a belief in practice. But the uh, National Organic Program uh, with the USDA um, was brought into law in 2001, so we're 20 years into that now. And uh, fact check this, but I would say that the majority of operations are in fact mixed operations, meaning that they plant both conventional and organic crops. And I think that uh, that's fantastic. I think that um, you know various parts of the market demand different things. I think that um, we in the United States are very blessed with a cheap and reliable food supply. And I do think that over time, organic production will gain as a percentage of total production in the U.S. We're seeing that year-over-year growth of acres continues. Um, Consumers continue to ask for that. Retailers, uh, CPGs, your consumer brands continue to ask for that. And and to be frank, I think that there's there's enough demand and enough market to go around for everyone. Uh, Kind of as an aside, I personally think that Farming organically makes me a better conventional farmer, a better farmer all around. One thing that uh, uh, being an organic farmer, you make considerably more passes across the field. And that is a criticism that some will make that you're consuming more fuel, you're, um, you know, more tractor time, more passes, more tillage. And so there is a balance there to be made. But I think that um, being out there, during the growing season, from the time that that crop is sprouting out of the ground until it canopies or it's too tall to drive across, makes me pay a lot closer attention than uh, than making the, the drive-by at the field edge. And uh, you know, you're across every square foot of that field multiple times and you really learn a farm. You really learn where the, the best areas are and the areas that need improvement. And it pushes you into managing drainage and managing your soil health and managing um you know the way that you you handle that land because each each farm has its own unique challenges and you know if you go in there and and slam the the seed in once and come back at harvest and don't ever see it in between it's hard to really know what happened in between um you know kind of speaking to the the consumer side um you know it's it's well known that uh the, the millennial and, and Gen Z uh, are, are taking over as far as uh, numbers go and are, are exceeding the number of baby boomers. And, you know, we know that the baby boomer generation today is typically conservative money. Um, those folks have bought their homes, bought their cars. They're fairly well entrenched in a pattern of, um, of what they like to eat and consume. And sure, those things change, but Something I think is important to note that today, a 20-year-old person who is at an age where they're starting to make their own food choices, they're not 
they're not eating what their parents bought or what the school served mm-hmm. them. They're at 20 years old. A lot of folks are starting to go to the grocery store and make that choice. Those are the first generation ever in the United States to be um, raised with organic food as an option from birth. And organic baby food started as one of the strongest and largest consumer demand markets and continues to be. And, and everyone knows that a new parent, a new mother, a new father wants only the best for their children. And if there's any type of fear or any type of concern that uh, technology maybe isn't proven or could be unsafe or they, they read something that alarmed them, even if the, that person's not going to feed themselves or pay a price premium for it themselves, oftentimes they will do that for their children. And so up until now, everyone that has decided to purchase something with a certified organic label, and, and we, can, we can throw non-GMO in there as well because we're, we're less time into that as having a non-GMO project mm-hmm. verified label and having this actually stamped on food products. But, you know, folks my age and older um, have to make a conscious choice to switch. But that 20-year-old today who was fed organic Gerber baby food and they had that for their entire childhood, that's just part of what, that's food. That's what they buy. That's what they always have eaten. And so I think it's really important for, for farmers or anyone that's in the supply chain to recognize that today and forever forward, we have a generation of people that this is all they've known from birth. And that age of people are starting to have children. And, and so we have this momentum uh, that's building that I, I can't imagine goes away. I'm not a I'm not an economist, obviously, but the supply and demand uh, piece is interesting to me. Uh, you know, if if every farmer went out and started growing organically, not that everyone would, but obviously it would increase the supply. Even if even if demand increased to a certain ex- extent, it would obviously decrease the value of that crop. So where do you see that um, homeostasis landing between those two markets, or? Yeah, you know, is the the tide going to continue to shift towards organic, and how quickly or will that slow down? What What do you think? Yeah, no, that's it's a really important question, and there's um, just getting to be some USDA data tracking that, and so it's been extremely ill-defined in the past. There's an organization called Mercaris who's done a really nice job trying to uh, aggregate data, collect that, and they've been around long enough that they have a good reputation um, in the food industry of of being able to be a reliable information source. I will say that for the majority of the last 20 years, the organic carryout has been zero in the United States. It has been, you know, every last bushel of corn, soybeans, and wheat has been consumed. The United States is a net importer of organic grains. Think about that. The largest exporting grain nation in the world is a net importer of organics. So, you know, let that sink in a little bit um, because that tells you where the supply and demand has been. I will say that 2020 and 21 are probably the first years in history that we actually have a carryout, meaning that on September 1, there is available supply in the pipeline for feeders, food processors, or, or anyone that would be handling or trading grain to actually purchase and buy. That is starkly different than everything that we know about grains. We know that 
corn, soy, and wheat typically have carryouts, and most years it's the carryout's larger than what a farmer would like. You know, farmers love a tight carryout. That means higher prices. And the other thing that's interesting with that is within conventional, there's always a substitute, meaning that, you know, if corn supplies are tight, uh, animal feeders can substitute wheat or they can import from South America and play counter seasonal. Um, so when you look at organics, it's, it's difficult and actually impossible to substitute because of the USDA rules. Uh, I'd like to touch on something with regard to imports. Um, organic imports have a, a really severe black eye, especially in the organic farmer industry, um, because there are known examples of fraud. Um, it is widely known that non-GMO crops out of the Black Sea, I'm talking Russia, Ukraine, Romania, uh, come out of the Black sea, Black sea via Turkey and the Bosphorus Strait, and there have been um, falsified documents that take a conventionally grown non-GMO crop, and when it lands in the United States, it has an organic label. And, and that's absolutely wrong. That's damaging to the industry. It's damaging to the brand. I will say that USDA uh, is finally getting their act together with some enforcement and compliance. Recently, a rule changed. Um, so I mentioned the Black Sea um, as a large exporter of organic crops. The other exporters include Argentina and India. India and Argentina both are substantial exporters of soybeans and in India, soybean meal. And so we know to grow chickens. And, and by the way, even the occasional organic consumer, someone that's maybe not solely buying organic or is not a dedicated organic consumer, the first products that are typically bought are milk and eggs. Okay. You know, they're, um, they're readily available in the grocery stores. They're, um, there's, there's kind of a clear understanding. And, and, and I'm putting those as in a grain world um, that are different than vegetables. Fruits and vegetables are are a category that I'm, I'm not really touching on, so I don't want to misquote that because fruit and vegetables are, are absolutely um, a higher percentage consumption than than grains or meats sure. or eggs. But, um, you know, the, the egg industry, the broiler industry, and the dairy industry have done an excellent job with building supply. Uh, there's a new uh, poultry kill plant opening later this year in Pennsylvania that will uh, at least double... Um, the, the capacity. And so we've got feed demand coming. Uh, we assume that consumer demand stays behind that. But I guess back to your, your S&D comment or your, your supply and demand balance and, and dichotomy, it's really, um, it is really interesting. And these last, say, you know, six to 12 months have absolutely proven that because um, while um, Commodity prices, you know, we know it peaked in 2012 and we had a couple, you know, relatively high years following that while the world rebuilt supplies following a, a massive drought. We dealt with relatively low commodity prices for several years. Corn prices were, um, you know, were, were pretty stagnant and bean prices weren't fantastic. But during that time, organic production couldn't keep up. The consumer demand, the retail demand was um, continuing to pull more and the other thing I'll mention you can't you can't all of a sudden create more organic production because it takes 36 months from the last prohibited substance in order to be certified organic so we typically work we historically worked on a 12-month production cycle now I narrow that up to six months because if prices get out of 
whack or demand and supply are out of balance, we have South America that will, will counter that. You know, Brazil has overtaken the U.S. as far as um, the total net export uh, of soybeans. And we have a massive production in South America that will absolutely um, bolster supply when, when it happens. And I fully expect that by the end of the summer this year, we will see South American production landing in the United States. Um, we know that supplies are tight. We can ship everything to China and, and the other countries that are buying it. But then when supplies run tight in August and the animals still have to eat, that grain's got to come from somewhere and that's going to be the cheapest source. And it looks like that will be South America. And so we kind of narrow up that uh, production cycle and that will generally decrease volatility in commodities because if the world has to wait a full 12 months for another U.S. harvest, there's a lot of risk. What if we have another short crop? What if, what if? Whereas now we balance that every six months and it, it substantially decreases that world production risk. Whereas with organics, it's very different because if there's a shortfall in supply, it's a full 36 months until new supply can come on. And so that's continually rolling and um, why I think that's become evident in the last six months, I just described the last you know eight to 10 years. When we look at what happened when uh, commodity grains bottomed in August, September 2020, and by the way, corn is up, corn futures are up about 80% since last <laughs> August. I mean, that's a phenomenal yeah. move in a very short time. Organic corn prices have not moved higher. They have, they have stagnated and in many cases been flat to lower. And one of the main reasons for that is organic corn that was harvested in 2020 means that that commitment was made in roughly 2016 or 17 when commodity prices were low and organic prices were still high. So a, a farmer that's looking at his options said, I will grow something that will return me better revenue and, and, and also has other benefits for the things we talked about earlier. And, and so those commitments were made in a completely different price environment. You know, 350 cash corn compared to $12 organic corn, that's, whew, my, that's, that's a big swing. Today, organic corn prices are substantially lower and commodity corn prices are substantially higher. Um, so I think it's possible some farmers will opt out of organics if their motives are purely profit and they're looking at that annual or, or even a, a couple years worth of revenue um, as their decision model. The decision today says to change it up. Um, if their goals are otherwise, that might be satisfying consumer demand, satisfying landowner wishes, um, satisfying their desire to spread their labor. And, uh, and oftentimes, you know, we talk about um, bringing additional people into the operation. And um, one thing I see in, in organic farming that's a big benefit is it does take more labor. And more labor means more rural jobs and more uh, what I'll call meaningful work for people that are living in these rural communities and and it allows maybe maybe a family or or, or multiple families to um, make a living off of less acres than what can be earned uh, in the commodity market say over the long term that's really interesting in the 36 months you mentioned you kind of mentioned the subject of people getting in and out of organic production obviously if you're going to commit three years to get into organic production, that's a commitment that if you're willing to make that. Um, and then by the same token, if you're in organic production, 
and you've made that commitment and the prices maybe aren't quite as favorable, you're also going to be a little bit more resistant to go back into traditional, conventional crop production, I would assume. Correct. I saw that in 2009. So the financial crisis, the recession that followed in 08 and, and followed into 09 saw, you know, it's deep slash in organic demand. And keep in mind, the organic industry was a lot smaller then than it is today. It's grown substantially in the last 12 or 13 years. But, you know, in 2008, organic corn was worth $15 a bushel. Conventional corn, yes, it did hit $8, but we still maintained that, that 2x price. In 2009, we all know that prices of everything dropped after, you know, the oil bubble burst and, and everything dropped, stocks included. Um, and, and organic went right along with that. When people lost their jobs and lost their homes and the economy was suffering, um, one of the first things that people, you know, at that time would stop uh, was was purchasing what was a premium product. And if you're struggling to, to pay your bills, paying a premium for a gallon of milk versus buying the generic store brand is, is the decision that you make. Mm-hmm. And so I saw... You know, it, you know, lots of bubbles happened in 2008, <laughs> and, and organic was no exception. And so I did see a few people, a few operations leave. They said, "I've been burnt by this. I, you know, I, I'm I'm not able to make as much as I was on uh, the conventional ground, and so I'm out." And so someone that went through that and had that experience is probably less likely to re-enter that. Um, so. I guess we'll have to talk in a few years and see see what this round does. Um, you know, 2021 weather will certainly play a big role in, in a lot of this. If we if we have a big crop this year, then we expect continued price pressure all the way around. And if uh, if it doesn't start raining and we stay dry and burn up, then a uh, completely different story. Sure. So another question I have around infrastructure. So you're in central Illinois, east central Illinois. There are places where you can market your grain. Is that infrastructure all, you know, in the U.S. especially, is it all across the U.S.? Is it pretty easy for a grower, say, in western Kansas, if he wants to get into organic? Is that infrastructure spread out to that extent now? Or is it still somewhat limited in where you can market your grain? You know, it's definitely more limited. It's not as convenient. You know, we're, we're blessed in east central Illinois with probably one of the most dense country elevator networks, whether that's private, publicly traded, or cooperative. There's probably, again, fact check this one, but East Central Illinois has a extreme density of country grain elevators and typically a low percentage of on-farm storage. That varies um, quite a bit from other parts of the country that do not have the uh, country elevator infrastructure. And if you're in Western Minnesota, South Dakota, Western Kansas, where, you know, you might be 50 or 70 miles away from a country grain elevator, your farm develops on-farm storage out of necessity. You cannot turn trucks fast enough to keep up with modern harvesting. And so uh, building that on-farm storage in those areas becomes a necessity where maybe it hasn't been a necessity in this part of the world. Conversely, um, East Central Illinois is also probably one of the hottest areas for IP production, identity preserved. Um, we know that the major seed brands all grow seed beans, seed corn, and seed wheat in this part of the world. And the reason that they're here is the reliability of production. The good soils, the reliable climate, the central location for transportation, and uh, and all of those factors combined um, 
have made it uh, really a hotbed for IP markets. You know, there's others. Um, you know, there's parts of the Platte River Valley in Nebraska that are the same. Most of the the, the major processing and seed companies that are in East Central Illinois are also near the Platte River in Nebraska for uh, geographic diversification and uh, and also because they have fantastic yields on average. So um, so I guess you know to kind of bring it back to center, um, it's not easy. You can't take organic crops to the nearest elevator and dump it at an organic price. You can dump it at a conventional price, uh, you know, and, and kind of that's where we, defeats the purpose. A yeah, that, it, it's, you know, it's a, it, it, I don't know if I want to call it a one way street, but you can sell organics in a conventional market, but you can't sell conventional in an sure. organic market. And so, um, that does create a challenge. It does put uh, pressure on the producer and the grower to, to bring some of that storage into their own control, uh, because, even you might be five miles from a country elevator, but you might be 50 or 100 miles from a, uh, an organic consumption point. In the last maybe four or five years, probably three years, there's been a, a substantial increase in the uh, available locations for farmers to deliver that. Um, most of your major grain companies have an organic division today. I, I think actually, uh, yes, most I would say three of the top five anyway have country elevators where farmers can deliver organic crops too. So uh, it's certainly increased over what it used to be and I kind of think it will continue to increase. Um, I guess I'll, I'll kind of go a little further with that beyond your question and I believe that the age of commoditization is behind us and the age of identity preservation is here. Uh, consumers today want information. We're in the information age. We all hold a computer in the palm of our hand and we want to know we, we, we have access to information. And so this isn't, you know, I, I want to be agnostic about this between it's not organic or conventional or traits or no traits or GMO. It's that's a side. It, but in the future, what's to say we don't produce, uh, you know, high oil, high lysine, corn that uh, minimizes diabetic risk. We don't know. We don't know what this might be, but I think that the technology is there, the breeding efforts are there, and the science is there to, to bring forward identity-preserved grains in a massive, uh, massive array for lots of things, whether that's for animal consumption, human consumption, uh, household products. I mean, let's look at plastics. I mean, we all know that Petroleum-based plastics are a problem, and we should be using more bioplastics. And so, when uh, when Bayer develops a corn that is really efficient at making bioplastic, great. We're going to have less reliance on oil-based plastics and more corn, and I think that's fantastic. And so, to that point, the you know, IP doesn't mean small. I want to highlight that as well. It's a, it's a misconception that, oh, if you're doing an identity preserved crop or an organic, it, it needs to be small scale. It needs to be a small bin. And, and, and historically, on average, that may have been the case. But I'll say today that's not, not true. And uh, in the future, I think that that, that continues. And so it, um, having these identity preserved lines and, and, and growers, I think, will be asked to do this and financially asked to do this by the market. You've started to talk a little bit about the future and where you think things are headed. Is there anything else that you see coming on the horizon 
that excites you about ag in the future, whether it's from a conventional perspective or an organic perspective, or do you see a fusion of the two systems? What do you see? Soil. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, right now we're on the cusp of, and, and in the midst, really, not on the cusp, we're in it, a, a real massive soil revolution. The science and knowledge of what's going on in the soils is accelerating at a pace faster than we've ever seen before. A hundred years ago, a lot of the land around here was just becoming farmable. I mean, there's there's well-documented, you know, uh, information that at the turn of the century, people weren't able to farm much ground around here. It was too swampy. And so, you know, a hundred years ago, field tile was laid, it, the swamp was drained, and we discovered some of the most fertile ground on earth. And... Um, and people saw black soil, black dirt, plowed prairie. It was beautiful. It produced. It, you know, it, it was phenomenal, and uh, and that continued on for several generations. You know, you you find a good piece of land, and it's gonna you take care of it. It'll take care of you. And that was that was kind of the mantra. We all grew up hearing that, right? <laughs> and uh, that's um, that's still true today. It, it, it remains a fact. But what I'm seeing is microbes and some of the uh, the life that are in the soil, both good and bad. You know, we, we talked before the podcast about the nematodes and, and some of the discoveries and um, things that are being found there and what things that we are seeing today that were just totally unknown and, and can be proven by science. So I guess if I'm to throw a flyer into the future, it's that we will continue to see specific prescriptions and uh, management for uh, individual soils and that's likely to happen not just across one region to another but probably sooner than later from one part of a field to another variable rate planting multi-hybrid seeding variable rate fertilizer has been around for some time now right it's it's proven itself as as an option for farmers and I think the next step to that is um, is managing soil health and managing your, your, your microbes and, and what that soil can do across each acre. So uh, I don't know what I don't know yet, but I, I think it's it's here and it's coming. And, and I trust that, uh, you know, folks like Jason Preston and your team are, are going to lead the way in making these discoveries. So uh, I guess if I'm to, to predict the future, it's that we'll, we'll get to know a lot more about our soils. Yeah, that's very interesting. It, it is really almost like a whole... Uh, not, I wouldn't say unexplored frontier, but uh, uh, we're learning more about it all the time. Yeah. And yeah. it's critical. Yeah, it, it really is. And, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough about trying to preserve soil. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, pass judgment or ever tell someone how how they should or, or should not farm and how someone should take care of the land. That's an individual decision. That's a, you know, that's a right and been part of the freedom that, that we have as Americans uh, but I will say that it, it goes back to what I said earlier. Take care of the soil, and the soil will take care of you. Absolutely. Well, this has been really interesting, Wyatt. I've, I've enjoyed talking with you today. As we sign off here, do you have a way that if people are interested in learning more about this, that they can either contact you or follow you on social media, or do you have a website? Is there some way people can interact with you? Sure. I... Uh, I I do have some social media accounts. I'm not a very active poster. I'll be honest that I uh, I, I don't do very well in, in keeping up on that department. I find 
uh, a lot of days are, are busy enough that I, I, I haven't made that a priority. You have and, more important and, things and, well, I'm not saying that I have more important things to do. I'm just saying that, okay, I have uh, things and, and, and stuff to take care of each day, and I have not made that a priority. Uh, sure. I'm always reachable by phone or email. My email address is firstnamelastname at gmail. That's W-Y-A-T-T-M-U-S-E at gmail.com. And my phone number is 217-619-3203. Thanks a lot. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, Jason. This has been a lot of fun. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.